I saw that they were trying to close all the help for special needs for disability. The kids that were in really bad shape could not be cared for in a home. I was so upset. I was just like, okay, every community meeting I would go, I would stand up, I would speak out. I was, I didn't do that when I was young. I've learned to find my voice. And that's what I try to teach young moms, especially you have a voice and you must use your voice or your child will never get what they need. And don't expect the people to come to you and tell you what you need to do. To overcome, you must educate. Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. Today we are speaking with Cheryl Jennings. She is an author. The book is It Takes Courage to Be a Caregiver, and she is known as the Caregiver Whisperer. Cheryl, could you please introduce yourself? Let people know just a little more about you, please. Okay. Well, good to see you, Ed, and I'm glad to be here today. I am a mom, first of all, of a son that has special needs. And then along the way, I help care for parents. And some were out of town. I'd have to travel a lot and go back and forth and stay for a while. And others were in my home other times. So I've got a lot of experience and uh, watched a lot of the caregiving that went on in my parents and my grandparents' homes. So I come from experience first. And then learning lessons that we need to share with other people to make it easier for them. Because when our son was born, he's now 52, they didn't know anything about what cerebral palsy was. They didn't even diagnose him for 14 months. And so they didn't know anything to tell parents. You know, they just didn't know what to say. So they oftentimes told us, put him away, forget you had him instead of encouraging us to find any way to reach out and try to find some resources. So that's where I come from. And to get there, I've been a minister's wife all my life, or my, and I grew up in a minister's home. So we were always helping people. And then I'm a certified coach and a international speaker. And I have written two books, but I've been in 16 others. And I think either five or six have become international bestsellers. But I only say that in order to let you know, I've been out there, I'm writing, I'm trying to encourage people to do the best they can and help each other. So that's where I'm coming from, Ed. We need that more in our world, don't we, Cheryl? Absolutely. It's, it's just such a gift when we find people that have the nature of giving. It's lacking in our world so much and I, I really hurt for people because I understand we're all in it 
and we right. all have our different struggles. But when Absolutely. we find connection, that's the key. And caregiving, this is, I've been a caregiver and I understand it is hard. And my, my stepfather, he had dementia. And some of the mm -hmm. things that I went through, not knowing what the disease was and right. how the stages progressed, this right. was overwhelming and it created so much stress and burdens, but yet I was willing to do that. There are so many things that people don't know about caregivers and how caregivers go through life. Talk Absolutely. to us a little bit about some of those struggles that okay. caregivers go through. Well, first of all, even in the U.S. right now, we've got about 55 million people who are home caring for someone. And it made a lot of them have to quit work. So there were immediate problems dealing with finances, with how am I going to do this? How can I try to make a little money on the side or whatever I need to do, but care for somebody who needs attention all the time. Um, and out of that, what was really shocking to me when I started doing, I was asked to do a radio program and it focused on caregivers. I wanted to know what gave people courage to be a caregiver to, like you, you know, what, what helped made you say, yes, I'm going to do that because I love my dad or my father, my mom, whoever it is that we care for enough that we are willing to do whatever it takes when we don't know what we're doing. And I wanted yeah. to know what lessons we learned along the way that we can pass on and make it easier for future generations. We know that with the number of baby boomers that are retiring every day, there is a shortage of caregivers. So more people will be needing to be a caregiver in their home and they don't realize it. Uh, I did a little survey and are probably over two thirds of the people that I interviewed had waited until a crisis happened before they actually asked their parents, well, what now, what do you want? And then a lot of times that's where the problem comes in because you're highly emotional. You're thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. I can't afford to put them into a care center. And I thought I could, or maybe you thought I'll never put them in a care center. Whatever your thoughts are, you've got to deal with your own feelings, but you've also got a parent who's thinking I'm losing control. And if they don't realize what's happening to them, then you've got even more problems because you may not have found out where's their will. Have they got one? Who's on it? Who's going to help take care of those things? Do they have uh, advanced directive? Have they made a decision about, you know, who's going to be the person to take care of things after they're gone and go to the bank or whatever needs to happen for that person? There's a lot that will happen. But if we're not prepared for it, then we're just really in a lot of stress and overwhelmed trying to figure out just day to day, but then that's going to add a lot more, you know, because it's financial, it's physical, it's emotional. It it just drains us trying to figure out how to take care of the rest of what we were doing before this happened. You know, ourselves, our families, kids, whatever we were doing with work or whatever. But then you've got this added uh, responsibility that they may not be able to help you at all. 
They may not know how to fix their meal. They may not know how to even turn the burner off. And so with dementia and Alzheimer's, you have a lot of extra issues that are they become scary because they can go away from home. They can get the keys to the car. We see Amber alerts all the time, you know, for somebody who's gone away, we'll have a parent that disappears. They're hunting for a week to try to find them because they don't have a clue where they are. Or we have families that are trying to make a decision. Uh, I had a, a, somebody asked me on Quora, you know, how do I tell my aunt that, she was not going home because she has dementia. And one of the things I learned from somebody I interviewed was so beneficial to me, but it helped a lot of people. And it was to say, you know, you can just postpone those conversations and say, well, we'll talk about that later. Or just, you don't have to answer everything as if it has to have an answer right now. And even with our own son, when he would when we first had to have help, because my own health broke down, every time I would see him, he would go, when you come back, when you go, when I go home, you know, or something that tugged at my heart so much because I was unable to take care of him and I couldn't lift him and I can't now for sure. But I felt like it was I hate this place. I want out of here. And really, it was just, yeah. I want to know, are you coming back? Am I going to be with you again? And sometimes we read into the messages more than we really have to answer. You know, it's it's something that if we can learn to be kind, don't argue with somebody who is not mentally able to have a conversation because they're not at the same place you are. They think they want to go back to a place that you may not even know about that was when they were a child. Th- yeah. There's no way they can go there. So if you're trying to convince them of something, it isn't going to happen. It's just going to frustrate you and it's going to make them anxious and fearful and wonder, am I stuck here? Where am I? I don't even know where I am. And so, you know, a lot of conversations, if we can just learn a little bit from those who've gone through it, And that's the main thing I would tell people is if you are whatever problem that you're trying to deal with, if you can meet up, even if it's online, if it's through text, and I've got some people I text, I've never met in person, but they helped me through a lot of stressful times when I was just concerned that my son wasn't going to make it. You know, he was between life and death. And yet their little notes of encouragement helped me through those times. What I wanted to mention, though, is the statistic that is alarming. 67% of caregivers pass away before the person they're caring for. If you're over 70, it goes to 70%. Now, what that is telling us is we need to learn how to take care of ourselves while we're taking care of others. And we need to learn how to support those who may be our neighbor, They may be at church. They may be extended family. They may be away from home. But you can say, how are you doing as the caregiver? What can I do for you? And if your neighbor, I had a, uh, my mother was caring for my dad after he had a surgery that went wrong and he became a, a total invalid, had stroke, didn't understand things. But a neighbor would come over and visit with him for about an hour once a week and mother could go get groceries. 
Do you know that was such a huge relief for her? A stress relief because she had a few minutes by herself and she knew he was going to be all right and that she could go do that and come back. And those are little things. And yet we forget, you know, if I called you, I might say, Ed, how's your dad? What did the doctor say? Well, what are you going to do? And it's all focused on the person you care for instead of turning it around and saying, what can I do for you? And if you're not close, you might be able to say, well, how about if I send you a gift card and you can have dinner brought to your house sometime when you need it the most? Or what about if I have a, a somebody come and clean your house for you? Once every six months would be a blessing. I'd take it. <laughs> or I'm running yeah. errands. Can I pick up your groceries for you? And now we're seeing that because of COVID, we now see that's a possibility that's not hard. You know, I have some friends that they make a list of groceries for for somebody who can't do it. And then it's paid for. They go pick it up and take it to their house for them. It's easy because it's already what they wanted. It's paid for. They're just delivering it and making sure they're eating. So, you know, some of the things we can learn how to do are not hard. It's just takes a little bit of thought in asking, what do you need? You know, and then yeah. the other thing too, Ed, is that we don't realize how much we need to take care of ourselves. And we right. say, well, I'm not feeling good, but I don't know how I can get to the doctor today. I'll have to wait until things are better. And when dad gets better, I'll go. Well, dad may not get better. Mom may not get better. But we've postponed and now we're older, caring for older parents, as well as maybe have children, grandchildren, or I just had my first great grandchild. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, it, you know, life is full of obligations, but we need to learn it's the right thing to take care of yourself. It's not selfish. And I, I used to think it was, it's not, you know, if you don't yeah. take care of yourself, who will take care of you and that other person? That's right. It isn't going to happen. And, you know, the important, <laughs> the important thing there, Cheryl, is you don't have to go spend a thousand dollars on yourself no. and feel no. like you're a queen or a king. You can actually just as simple as you said, go have lunch with a friend or something, you know, that can cost what, 10, 12 bucks. And or just go sit in the relief. backyard and read a book. You That's know, just right. a quiet time away. of not thinking I have somebody I need to be watching out for all the time, you know? Yeah. Well, well, you know, it's hard as a caregiver to put aside that care mindset. And, and even when you're trying to relax, you tend to still dwell on Oh, is it okay? They need me over there. It's right. it's in your DNA. It's kind Ooh. of part of us. And those caregivers know who they are. And those people that aren't, well, they know they don't want to do this. It's very difficult. And we find in our population today, nobody wants to take care of the elders they always get shipped away, get shipped out. And that's not a bad thing, but you should know where you're shipping them to. Well, when I got overwhelmed, they, they gave me the opportunity 
to have Joe taken out for like a week to two weeks. And I think it was up to 30 days just to give me a break from it. That respite care is important. It is. Is that what it was called? That's what you call it, respite. When it's not permanent, it's just a relief for temporary time. But not many places have that, Ed. You know, that's something that... important. Oh, it is. Uh, A few years ago, we got a call from a group home where our son was that he had been assaulted by a caregiver in that home. And when that happened, it crushed us. I mean, I was so distraught. I I was depressed. I felt guilty that I couldn't have protected him. Here he is, total care, laying on a bed and somebody socks him in the face. We get there in this big bruise. Well, you know, working through all of that, I reported it to every agency that I could, but I Mm -hmm. also downloaded a list of all the places that I might be able to get help. And I loaded the car and I said, I don't know when I'll be back, but I'm going to go find something better. And I left him. We have to keep him in the Texas system, even though we're in Oklahoma, because we will lose all the benefits if he changes states. And we've done Uh that once. Never do it again. No matter what it takes, he's going to remain where he has the benefits. But um, I went and interviewed 14 companies in a week. And at the end of the week, some the first one that helped me said, you haven't found what you wanted, have you? And I said, no. And he said, well, there's one other choice that I didn't really understand. And that was they have a system called foster families, where a family that may be young, and they are, they're younger than our youngest daughter, wow. want to take in somebody to take care of and they'd done this once before with a young boy from high school that was not expected to live he wasn't going to live but two years he lived nine because they loved him and they did everything they could to help him and they had grieved for a year because they were really going to even adopt him if they could have well when I met them we drove over the next week my husband and I sat down in their little tiny house and they said Here's our information. Here's the doctor that we go to. And if we take him, we want him the rest of his life. And I was like, what? Wait, I'm not giving my son away. And I didn't understand. And they said, but if you let us have him in our home and he becomes part of our family, we don't want you to come and say, oh, I'm moving him next week. And I looked at them and I said, I have never had anybody tell me anything close to that. It's been 10 years now. They are part of our family. We celebrate things with them, holidays. They've made an effort to help our son be able to be with his sisters who live very far away. One's in Tennessee, one's in northern Oklahoma. But we just got to meet them last week in Oklahoma City, and we all met, came from different, except the one in Tennessee, she couldn't be there. But we got to have Christmas together, and it was because they were willing to make that effort to help him, too. But you better believe I'll do anything I can to help them be able to find somebody to stay with our son so they can have their week of vacation that they want when he normally goes to a camp. But with COVID, he didn't get to go last year. We got word three weeks before. You can't come to camp unless you bring somebody with you who will change you, feed you, and do everything for you 24-7 while you're at camp. 
because they didn't have the staff. So he didn't get to go. So we immediately said, okay, what will it take? They already had reservations to take their kids and go water rafting. Blake couldn't do that. He's in a wheelchair and they are with him all the time anyway, but they're awesome. And there are families that are willing to do that. And it's such a better situation if you get the right people. And I know there's some that might want to do it just for the money. And that's not going to be a good situation every time because they may have a very dysfunctional family to put them in. And I've had that happen once before. And I said, no, because it wasn't the right thing. You know, he's my son. He'll always be my son. I'm going to protect him, even though I can't physically have him right here in my home all the time. So, you know, there's, there's options, but what you, what you're talking about, that's something I wish we could make other people understand respite care is critical for the caregiver. They need it that is. time to relax, to not feel responsible for somebody, to just let their own bodies rest from the stress of thinking all the time. What do they need? What are they going to need next? Especially if they don't That's breathe right. good or they don't, they can't eat without yeah. you or you've yeah. got to change them all the time. That's right. My father, we had to tube feed him, and you know that's that's just one of those what? Well, you you think it's going to be surgery surgery before you get in and do it, but yet once you start doing the caregiver task and get it, it falls into a routine. That's for sure. And that respite care, I'm glad you told me what that was. I never. <laughs> never really asked. <laughs> you mentioned quite a bit of those statistics, you know, and I, I looked some up before we came on. You mentioned the uh, 67% of the caregivers actually die if they are uh, of a certain age, over 50. Mm-hmm. And that was uh performed by Stanton University back in 1999, that study. And that's However, probably not up to date. <laughs> yeah, that's not up to date. I'm really curious. I couldn't find any up-to-date stats on that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's got to be higher than those old stats. It's it's just crazy. How important, because you kind of mentioned in when you were talking about the care and the respite care, all of that, how important is it to have a backup care plan? Oh, if at all possible, you got to have it. What if something happens to you? Um, I had a, a mother here in our town. Right after I started the radio program, she called in. She said, Cheryl, I need help. I have a son. I'm a, you know, I'm a single mom. She didn't have her husband anymore. She was a little older. Her son was about, I think she said about 35, had cerebral palsy. She literally had to pick him up. The house was small, no room for wheelchairs in the hallways and everything. Pick him up, hold him around her waist, getting to the bathroom, hold his body against the wall of the bathroom with her body to brush his teeth. And she said, I've got to have surgery. And the last time I had surgery, I had to pay for him to be in a nursing home and it was horrible. 
and he wouldn't eat until I came. And here I was recovering from surgery and had to go feed him every day because they didn't. And she said, I don't know how I'm going to. Well, you know what? She passed away. There were people that had tried to help a little bit, but most people go, I can't do that. Even caregivers who are healthcare workers that come into homes would tell my mother, oh, I can't lift your, your husband. I can't help you lifting. And you're like, that's what I need help with, to roll him right. over, to change his bed, you know, to do these things. And yet they will restrict themselves probably out more out of fear of a lawsuit of being heard or something like that. But what does that do to the caregiver? Their bodies break down. Mom had to have knee surgery. Dad went to a nursing home for two days and was crying. They had dropped him. They had bruised him. And he was crying to get out of there. She took him home and here she was recovering from surgery. You know, and so we had to get help in the home helping her, you know, because that is something. I mean, we were all my sisters and I took turns going in and staying with her and helping. And I had a sister and her husband that lived there and he would go at the drop of a hat. I mean, day or night, he was over there if anything happened to help her pick him up or, you know, if they needed an ambulance or whatever. But think of the people who are older at home alone, too. You see how much more important these alarms are or something. The technology is becoming more and more important for us to be able to connect with people where they don't have to respond. You know, if I had a stroke and I'm out, I can't tell you, hey, come and get me, I need help. And so people lay on the floor, lay in a bathroom or something. So we need backup. We need somebody that checks on them and it could be a neighbor that just checks on them on a you know daily basis. You can get meals on wheels and I guarantee it's not as good as what you would want to have, but you know, the main thing is to make sure they're eating and that their needs are taken care of if you don't have um, somebody that can live in the home. But we've got to figure out those situations, you know, just one at a time. How are we going to deal with it? Because a lot of these nursing homes are costing so much money. You can deplete everything somebody's got within a year. I mean, I know one one woman told me her husband, her father cost thirteen thousand a month, and her mother cost fifteen thousand because she needed more mental help than the oh. husband did, and they were in two different places. Well, now just think how fast your savings are gone. Yeah, it's just you know it's it's it makes money and it's not even well. the perfect care. You still need to check on them. And you mentioned something earlier about. Um, when they get older or they have Alzheimer's, just because your family forgets who you are, don't forget who they are. They're still your mother. That's and right. I've had people tell That's me, right. well, they're not my mom anymore. Oh, yes, they are. They birthed you. They took right. care of you when you were hard to deal with. When, you know, screaming, yelling, pulling things off of walls and everything. And here they are laying there just needing attention. Give me a break. We can yeah. take care of people if we just care about them, you know, and being able to go in and see that their needs are met if if it's not us being able to to do it at home. And I know we can't all physically do it. Uh, you know, when my son was at home, I worked 
I did everything I could for him. Then I had a little girl, then I had a baby. And then my father-in-law died. My mother-in-law came in to live with us. And I was doing an hour of homework a day for five people that worked with him, you know, physical speech, you know, occupational therapy, the school, the, you know, everybody. And then all of a sudden I was so sick. I ended up in the hospital. They thought I had cancer. And overnight we had to find somebody to help us with him. And during the six, months I was cared for, we realized we couldn't lift him like that anymore. I was already dropping him because I could, my back was going out. And so I struggled with, why did this, why am I not able to take care of him? You know, thinking that God was telling us you'll always be able to take care of any problem. He's saying we'll be able to take care of temptation every time. But that doesn't mean that every physical problem we have is going to be something I can physically do. And a lot of our mental uh, mindsets and beliefs that we have, we may need somebody to help us think through what are what's keeping us from being able to be the best that we can be to help other people. And I think that's what we're now seeing a lot of people are focused on, our mindsets and limiting beliefs and everything. Yes. And so maybe that'll help. Yeah, uh, another big thing you brought up the problem with caregivers when they go into a care providing facility a nursing home or respite whatever it might be i had to file suit with my father-in-law also against a nursing home which was providing respite care and I had to yank him and put him in another facility real quick. But the, that's so overlooked in this field. My wife and myself, we both worked in nursing homes. And I'm aware of some of these things that go on behind closed doors that kind of get people fired if they speak up. And right. I, I think we need to really have a, a goal to set up like closed caption TV systems in all care facilities, and they must be operational at all times. I, I think that's so critical because there are so many individuals that go through abuse and it's not right. And that we we can allow our politicians to have a substantial gain in their wealth as they grow in their policy making. And even afterwards with their package that they get leaving, if we can pay all of that, why can't we pay for these simple fixes in our system that will ensure dignity and honor to those that matter the most to us? You're absolutely right. I, I, when we first moved to Texas, we lived in Huntsville, which was where the walls unit is, where they put the mm -hmm. prisoners to death that, you know, I saw that they were trying to close all the help for special needs, for disability, the kids that were in really bad shape. Yeah. 
could not be cared for in a home. I was so upset. I was just like, okay, every community meeting I would go, I would stand up, I would speak out. I was, I didn't do that when I was young. I've learned to find my voice. And that's what I try to teach young moms, especially you have a voice and you must use your voice or your child will never get what they need. And don't expect the people to come to you and tell you what you need to do. If they do, a lot of times it's not right. I mean, they've got their own opinions about something that they don't know what they're talking about, you know, or they'll talk down to you as if you didn't know to come in out of the rain. But the need to speak up and to say, hey, I went to um, our Capitol and I went to see representatives and I said, why will you pay for prisoners who have murdered who have raped, who have done all these horrible things to get color TVs and have to make them, you know, really tough because they'll tear them up if you don't. And they sue for a 17 cent little plastic holder for your soap or if their food's a degree off when it's in lockdown. And we're paying for all that, paying for both sides on that. But you don't want to pay for people who can't help it. Our children didn't desire to be born with disabilities, but we love them. We want them to have the best. But when I interviewed a man who had started uh, help for cerebralpalsy.org, he does, uh, he has a a group of lawyers now that help there. I think there's like 14 when I interviewed him. He also does lobbying for those uh, people in Washington, but he said, it takes between three and $5 million to care for a child with cerebral palsy from birth to death. Now, what family is prepared for that? You don't, you're not, you're not young and have all these finances and people may think, well, you should be able to pay for it all. You can't. The first thing he ever got when he was just two years old cost more than we made. If we turned over our whole paycheck, it wouldn't pay for three hours, three days a week for him to have therapy. And that's just wrong. I mean, we need the services for them, but we want to give it to people who don't deserve it, who don't want to work, who commit crimes, who just do anything except try to help themselves. You know, there's a scripture in the Bible that says, if a man won't eat, neither let, I mean, if he won't work, neither let him eat. And yet we will do anything to take care of that for people, but we don't see the big problem that's staring us in the face that we have a lot of children with autism, with cerebral palsy, with any kind of disability, with health challenges that would boggle their minds if they had to spend a night in a in a hospital room, in a NICU unit, or in a, a room with uh, at uh, St. Jude Hospital with these little children with leukemia. And yet we just turned our blind eye, pretend it's not there, and go on and do things for people that they should be able to be working and helping pay for them their own way in life. But we shouldn't be funding so much that's, you know, extreme either for people that you know, well, you were talking about, you know, our, our politicians, we've got all things all mixed up. The people that need the help most are the least likely to get it. And I'm not trying to be discriminating against anybody. I'm just saying that if we can work, we need to take care of ourselves. We need to take care of our families. And if we can't, that's another problem. I mean, we'll need to help them, but 
you know, yeah. anyway. Priorities. It is. Priorities it's a priority. is a big key. And it all starts with truthful thinking and being truthful with ourselves. You know, well, and valuing life. I think we don't value yes. life. You know, big, we're we're having um, we have suicide rates that are horrible. We have children as young as five who commit suicide. Why? We have children as young as five and six who are being abused sexually with some of their own relatives. I, I saw a thing about that, and I just did a whole involved uh, study on the children who are being sexually uh, trafficked. And there's there's an article that came out and said, who's your neighbor? And it showed a little girl with her head down, and she's been going through this with her own family. She's six years old. Give me a break. We've got to start teaching families how to take care of each other and to to take care of the innocent. Let our children have some innocence in life and allow them to be loved and not be exploited. So, you know, those are things that I see that we really need to uh, really work on in our in our society and trying to help. Even it out where we're really focused on the people that need the help, do it, take care of them. And I'm not saying take it away from everybody, but we are extravagant sometimes with people that should yes. not be extravagant, should not have that extravagance. Cheryl, you plugged it right there, you know, and we all have a gift and we should use it to our utmost mm -hmm. ability. Absolutely. We, we, we need to see each other as uh, uplifting individuals instead of get downgrading each other. We've been judged for way too long, and it's time to actually take and stand up and take control of our lives again and make sure these needs are met for all of us. There's enough right. for everybody. We live in a world of an abundance, and he tells us so. Mm -hmm. And if anybody tells you otherwise, I think that's a lie. And I think that if we stand up for what's right, we can get this whole world back into a, a, a collaborative state. You know, right. we don't want to collaborate anymore. We all have our own opinion, and that's what we're sticking to. I like to challenge what I know, <laughs> you know, educate ourselves through listening to others. Absolutely. Do you have any closing thoughts for us? And do you have a call to action for people? I do. Um, one of the things that I've really tried to do is to help families that are dealing with some of these problems to understand they're not alone. You know, we feel like we're all alone when we have a child and we've never, we don't know anybody else that has to deal with this kind of problem. I have a website that's called Cheryl-Coaches.com. I've put an ebook on there that is for families who have special needs children. You can go and read the top five problems that they face and some tips about how to deal with it. But you'll see you're not alone. I found that even when I did this research just, you know, a few years ago, it went all the way back to what I felt when I was young. 
it went back to, I'm still seeing people deal with the same issues. Well, we can change that. So I want to help them learn how to do that. And part of it is learning how to find the support, the resources, learn how to speak up, you know, learn how communication is very important. In fact, one statistic that might also blow you away is that families who have a special needs child end in divorce, 87 to 90% of the time. Now you think about that and it just is absolutely, I've, I've been thinking wow. for the last few months about how can we get to the bottom of this? And one of the things that I would love to share is that I would love to help hospitals learn how to help their families. They'd get better marks for keeping taking care of families if they could learn to communicate in a way that gives hope instead of taking away hope. You know, when our son had a surgery five years ago and it was supposed to be for a feeding tube, they got in there and he got punctured everywhere. He had tubes coming out. They found his heart and stomach were attached. And then they went back in a week, tried it again, tried to do something. And then in walks a hospitalist who said, you need to sign this DNR right now. And I was like, wait a minute. I haven't talked about that. We haven't talked about that. My husband was sitting there and the young man that helps us with our son. And she said, well, you just need to do this. And I said, well, uh, let me talk to my doctor. Well, you don't have time. And I was looking at him laying there watching all this conversation, eight tubes coming in and out, and he's hearing all of this. And even if he didn't understand what DNR meant, I mean, it was easy to tell it was not a good thing from, you know, hearing our reactions. And I started crying. I said, can't we go in the hall? And she looked at him and she said, look at him. He has no quality of life. Five years ago. Okay. This is not when he was little. So it's still happening. If we can get to where yeah. we say, okay, we've, we now think we understand this is what the diagnosis is, but to help you, we have a social worker and we'd like to interview your family and see what your needs are and see if we can help you get in touch with a family that's gone through this before, help you find the resources that you need, and then have people like me that will, are willing to get in there and to say, yes, we've been through it, but you know what? It's tough, but we can make it. But every time we had a problem, we learned more resilience. We learned how to deal with things better. We're stronger people for it. And and you can do it too. We've been married 56 years. And no, it wasn't always easy. But we can do it. We have to just learn how to understand each other a little better. And some of the young families have taught me that you grieve in different ways, but you don't understand each other. And that's kind of starting the breakdown. And then when you have no hope from the people that are out there, it's really hard to make it work. That is so true. Cheryl, you're a very powerful individual and you have a lot of inspiration in you. I want to say thank you for being part of the Dead America program and keep doing what you're doing. I really am glad that um, we can be out there and we can find the people that need the help and offer to help them. 
thank you so much, Ed, for this time of being able to visit with you and to see your good art and how caring you are and how much you understand you. the situations and you're trying to do what you can to make the world better too, not just the ones That's you interview. all need to do. That's right. That's right. That's right. Thank you so Cheryl, much. Cheryl, it's, it's great knowing you. Thank you. If somebody wants to connect with me, get on that, uh, uh, on the website. And I have a calendar on there too. They can sign up to visit a little bit. Love to all see right. what they need. All right. Thank and you all so of much. The links will, yes. All of those links will be in the show notes area. And okay. make sure you reach out and connect with Cheryl. It's always a pleasure speaking with people like you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast enlightening, entertaining, educational in any way, please share, like, subscribe, and join us right back here next week for another great episode of Dead America Podcast. I'm Ed Waters, your host. Enjoy your afternoon, wherever you may be.